Empire is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. We will hear more about them later in the show. Again, when you have the ability to move money at the speed of information, then things are not going to move linearly. And so, look, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if we reach a trillion this time next year. Yeah, I, I think uh, hitting the trillion mark, uh, I would say in the, within the next 12 months, for sure. All right, folks, we've got the episode you all asked for uh, here with Stani Kulichov. Uh, could be possibly uh, completely botching how you pronounce your last name, Stani. But anyways, here with Stani from Ave, uh, also bringing on a special co-host today, Santiago Santos, previously Parify Capital, now advising a boatload of different DeFi projects, uh, doing a lot of angel investing in the space, uh, otherwise known as Punk9159 on Twitter. Um, so anyways, guys, welcome to, uh, welcome to Empire. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much, uh, Jason, for having, having us here. Uh, very pleasure. Yeah. Likewise, Jason. Great to be here. Yeah. Sonny, I think, uh, I think first a congratulations is in order, uh, a hundred billion in uh, TVL for, for DeFi. I feel like you guys really kicked off DeFi summer last year. How's, uh, how's a hundred billion feel? I still remember when, you know, Decentralized finance was pretty much like uh, one decentralized exchange, and 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 things started to move on, and there was five users in DeFi, and and then it became like a few thousands and a few hundred thousands, and now uh, a few million users in in addresses interacting with decentralized finance. So it's been definitely a journey, and and something that Ave has been contributing quite a lot, and and not completely. So you know, DeFi will not exist without uh, as an ecosystem. So it's it's an result of many uh, developers, uh, you know, users contributing, community members contributing to this whole big uh, uh, ecosystem where we want to make finance more transparent, uh, more fair and, and more efficient and essentially more, more valuable to the actual users than, than anyone else. Uh, Stani, I want to ask you, like, you have this wonderful view into DeFi. I mean, we're going to talk about all things Aave, social graph, go pretty deep into it. But I think just at a high level, you have this really amazing view into DeFi because you're so plugged into the ecosystem going back to ETHLAND. Like what, from a pretty high level view, like what stands out to you about where we're at right now? Uh, I think now in in, in decentralized finance, we, we're kind of in a moment where, you know, we we have a lot of uh, protocols that are, you know, executing something that already, like, you know, has been in a, some sort of shape and form in in traditional finance. So when we look at, for example, uh, you know, all the liquidity protocols and you know, collateralized uh, liquidity protocols, we we see that it exists in some way in in traditional finance, but in in smart contract and uh, environment, uh, it's more kind of like a better execute it uh, with smart contracts. You can do a lot of things where you can just re- remove the middleman and make things more efficient and, and also like a gather uh, liquidity more efficiently and with a wide range, especially because we're, we, what we're doing now, we, we moved from, from a finance that was paper-based electronic finance to something that is decentralized and, and unstoppable. You know, it, it boils down to, to uh, just more better uh, financial infrastructure. And I think now we're in a, in a state where we kind of are improving all the protocols, making them more secure, uh, expanding uh, as well, but also like uh, in, in the verge of looking to onboard things. So, for example, um, the next step is like how we can actually uh, 
get people who are not using decentralized finance and they're uh, using a legacy f- financial system, they're using fintech applications, how they could get exposure and how we can onboard the larger masses. And for Aave, we are looking into uh, things like, for example, um, you know, the institutional markets. And, and besides that, we're looking into not just onboarding institutionals, but how do we onboard, you know, the retail users, the traditional users, and also expose them into what DeFi is, what it means that you are owning the, these protocols and you have ownership and, and you, you can govern the protocols and uh, they actually exist in, in a way that they don't have centralized uh, uh, kind of like a, uh, systems. And I think that yeah. the, the educational onboarding part is now very uh, important for, for everyone. Yeah, just in terms of that educational side of things, right before we jump into some of the specifics, can you just give a high level on like what is DeFi for borrow and lend, and like how does that compare to just borrow and lend in, in TradFi? From my perspective, one of the key properties that was very interesting and is of, of DeFi is you're minimizing counterparty risk in, in a very radical way. So, for instance, uh, let's let's go back to 2008, for instance, in the global financial crisis. What happened to Lehman and, and a lot of banks? Uh, was essentially a huge mis- miscalculation of counterparty. I mean, like you, when you, for instance, go to a bank, you deposit your own money, whether you're retail or an institution, you don't really know what they do with it, right? You just sort of have some guarantees that there's, that the regulators are looking over these banks and saying, hey, you've ha- you got to have some sort of solvency and capital efficiency ratios, Basel rules as they're known, Um to make sure that you know the depositor's money is somewhat protected, but as we know, they re- they, they they lend that, they invest that, right? And so, um, you know, there's no there's no transparency, at least from your vantage point, the consumer, into how they're using that money, right? You're earning some sort of nominal savings rate or deposit rate, which is essentially zero uh, today, negative if you factor in inflation. So that's like traditional banking, right? Uh, there is a lot of counterparty risk because we know, like, if a bank goes insolvent, they, you know, there is FDIC insurance in the U.S. You know, up to one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. But if you're in anywhere else in Cyprus, some of these places, your money can be gone, right? Uh, in a in a radical scenario. Now you compare that to a smart contract like um, platform like Ave, and you know exactly how your money can be used. In fact, like there are no surprises. You're essentially depositing an asset, whether it be a stable coin or ETH or what have you. And as long as your collateral ratio is kept above a certain level, you will not be liquidated. Uh, of course, there are risks like smart contract risk. There might be bugs in the code that might render the smart contract and could, could blow up essentially, but it hasn't happened for Aave. Um, but otherwise, this is, this is like a key property that I always like try to tell regulators, which is, sure, it's important to like think about consumer protection, but the same way that you regulate a bank is not necessary in a platform like Aave because the rules are very well defined and can't be changed, right? Stani can't go to Aave right now and, 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 and yank all the liquidity for all the depositors' money, not even if you wanted to. And that's a core principle of, of blockchain technology and smart contracts, um, you know, that you have to look at, of course, if it's an, if it's an, uh, an immutable contract, if, if it can't be upgraded easily or if it can't be upgraded, how how that process goes. Um, but, you know, not a single entity, not a single person can use your funds. In fact, your funds are just sitting there and people are borrowing against that, um, but in a very clearly defined way. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. What problems do you see DeFi 2.0 solving? Is this just an extension of DeFi? Like, 
the you know original DeFi protocols? Like, where, where, where do you guys see this going? As you said, Jason, it's $100 billion now in deposits in, in, in the system that we call DeFi. I mean, that's not chump change. Like large players like JP Morgan's of the world uh, starting to pay you know, attention. I think uh, what's been really interesting on Aave's side, where I think they're really pushing the envelope forward, is saying, okay, how do we, how do we bring in these institutions? It needs some, some sort of hand-holding. And I find quite interesting what Aave is doing in, in, in what we call kind of like a more, I don't want to call it like um, private market, but, uh, but it's sort of like you whitelist, it, you whitelist the participants that can interact um, and lend and borrow against each other. Um, and there's really no reason why JP Morgan wouldn't want to interact in, in, in this type of system. Because again, most of the, when you think about most of the, um, the, the hiring that has happened in banks is back office and compliance. A lot of that can be totally minimized to a large extent if you're interacting on chain where everything's transparent and everything's much more efficient. Right. But I'll, I'll let Sonny like talk about this. Cause I, I think it's one of the key. I think this is where DeFi really grows from 100 billion to trillions. I need Stani to back me up here. I got a bunch of shit on Twitter because I said permission DeFi will get will become bigger than permissionless DeFi. Uh, and so I'm curious. Uh, St- anyway, Stani, jump in. Yeah, you know what? <clears throat> I, I think like uh, I think Santiago explained quite well, like the the network effects of what something like the Arc market can can evolve. And I think it's it's more of a, like a conceptual thing where, you know, uh, I think in 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 always in in Web three we have this kind of different kinds of narratives and categorization, and people tend to try to kind of like categorize things and what what's like what's the right way to do or what are the ways to what are the ways to build Web three. DeFi itself is transparent, auditable by anyone every single second, whether it's you know uh, user, uh, third party or regulator. You know you see air, the whole exposure, not just in Aave protocol, but you know the whole space all the time and also from things that are not DeFi, not financial, but you see movements and, and activities. So the whole ec- economy is auditable, which means that, you know, you can build better risk management tools and, and, and so forth. But when it comes to actually like onboarding institutions, they need some sort of a way to actually, you know, get, uh, you know, inspired uh, as well. So they need some sort of a sandbox model where they can actually test the liquidity test you know, how interesting it is that they have this transparency and they can participate. They might know the counterparties, but they have this smart contract-based execution, which which means that they don't have to rely on paper-based agreements uh, and settlement systems, with, which will take one or two days to settle and all this kind of like uh, 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 difficult ex- executioning. And with the ARC market, we simply created a new protocol. We took all the best parts from the, the permissionless protocol and just added a uh, whitelist function, which means that uh, the whitelisters that can actually be custodians, they can be banks, they can be uh, any kind of like a institution that has users. And this way we get actually these institutions that n- otherwise will not participate in DeFi, try out these functionalities, what DeFi can provide them and be in that particular market and maybe spill over over the time to the permissionless. Uh, DeFi. So we need both of the environments, but it takes time to scale uh, with with permissionless nature. And we want to be as expansive and inclusive as possible. And that's why we have chosen the road to actually, you know, go further beyond what we are doing now. In the next five, 10 years, if if DeFi hits trillions of of dollars, I think a lot of people, maybe all the apps that you have on your phone, uh, you know, like JP Morgan and and Chase will be the same. 
uh, maybe, but you'll start seeing like much more functionality because they'll just use Ave Arc, for instance. And so I, I would think that like a lot of a lot of the activity may come from Arc, um, and the user might just not even know that they're using these rails. Um, and so um, you know, because as you know, Jason, it's not you know, it's not easy for people to to use MetaMask to get initiated in crypto. It's really just um, you know nothing that's the best part of the technology like nothing might change you just go to jp morgan wells fargo app you want to get a mortgage all of a sudden it's a lower rate it's more competitive you get approved in seconds not days right because you've already been whitelisted um yeah. by that institution so that 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 i think is where you really hit escape velocity of DeFi, and yeah. we're not far from that state of the world yeah i've, I've heard stani i think it was on uh, up only or maybe you two were together on up only but as uh stani said <laughs> DeFi. you know there's all this talk on crypto twitter it's like DeFi is going to replace tradfi and stani says no 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 DeFi doesn't replace tradfi DeFi is just a software so i guess stani my question for you is like what's the trojan horse for DeFi? is it kind of what santiago said like yield becomes the Trojan horse for DeFi, where like the yield on Robinhood in the future comes from these protocols? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, as, as funny it is, like people like kind of like are interested in yield, you know, as, especially because like DeFi makes it like attractive and accessible. I mean, yield is usually super boring, I will say, uh, unless you're in DeFi. <laughs> yield is good because it, you know, it attracts a lot of people into the space, you know, it attracts institutions and, you know, retailers when, when they get, get yield on their like wealth. But then uh, the next thing is that how we can get everyone who has an Ethereum address to, you know, start creating that wealth pretty much from zero. And, and that creates this gold rush into the, the space. And I think one of the things I've been very much researching and, and kind of like uh, spending my time on is, is universal basic income. Because Web3 and, and, and blockchain has a way to actually do it in a, in a very scalable way. And, and when you make it very attractive and, and very functional, uh, pretty much anyone, any part of the world could generate an Ethereum address and receive uh, that kind of like a cash on a, on a periodical basis. And that might be a way to actually get uh, this kind of a rush into decentralized finance and, and, and uh, expand in... in like like globally, I I, th I don't think like DeFi will like the next big thing in DeFi will be just the fact that you know people are fundraising, the way we see for example uh, is happening with with uh, the Olympus DAO and, and similar forks. But I think it's it's more about like how do we get like like few billion people jump into uh, you know Ethereum or Layer Twos in a very like a short period of time, and that will be like the the next explosion. I would say. Can you start to fill us in on what you're thinking? with the social graph and decentralized Twitter and things like that? Yeah, so the social graph is very important, kind of like a decentralized social graph uh, is very important for us because currently I, I think social media in, in one way, in some part of parts it works and some parts it doesn't, but the models behind it are very kind of like extractive from the user. And in Web3, we're uh, always trying to pretty much build kind of like a uh, protocols or networks that are owned by their users. And Web3 is a different kind of model where you try to, in a centralized fashion, build something very efficient that extracts value to uh, stakeholders and shareholders, uh, mostly. 
And and that's kind of like a way where Web trees have created this model where you know they harvest data, they harvest users, and look into the platforms. Uh, you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and at the same time they make you grow your network there, but they lock you in. And and then you know based on interactions and their algorithms, they collect your data and then sell products to you, advertisements uh, back. If you want to take your audience from one place to another that you build, uh, that might not be, if you want to do that, that might not be possible for you. And growing audience in a new uh, platform is always, uh, you know, time consuming thing. And our goal is to create a social craft where, you know, anyone can build better user experiences on top and just removing uh, this like unlocking ability. And because you have this social graph, uh, you can actually distribute content to your audience uh, in a permissionless censorship resistant fashion. For example, if you want to uh, you, you are uh, an artist and you want specific, you know, specific fans to answer your questions that can be done because, you know, who has been like following you in a longer time period. If you have followers that you want to, to participate as a community in, in your decision making, you can do that as well. Uh, and essentially, like definitely like the social graph will play a big role in, in, in DeFi, but also by itself, it's a big value proposition uh, compared to what we have now in Web2. Ave owning a social graph? leads to the ability to do under collateralized loans is that can you explain how that social graph to under collateralized loans actually works or maybe maybe my thesis is totally wrong but for when we always build uh protocols and 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 products at all we we try not to build monoliths so we 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 are trying to build the very very bare minimum something that inspires other developers to build more on top of what we have so Let's say in terms of like the social graph and social the social media protocol, we there we don't want to solve the whole social media space. We just want to deliver something and and deploy something that is very valuable, but then leaves a lot of room to actually contribute and solve the other issues uh, with more people and and more consideration there. And for example, lending between you know the credit delegation under collateral loan and social graph is something we want to invite developers to come and solve. The same way as we want whatever we build at Aave and, and deploy, we want to leave enough room that others can come and solve these uh, challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the biggest criticism that we get from traditional finance yeah. folks, which is the system's not very efficient, right? Because in traditional finance, you're able to borrow under collateralized or, or without zero collateral um, in, in certain cases, um, because there is a lot of, again, credit has always been enforced by violence. And so a lot of people don't appreciate the look smart contracts and you can actually execute like legal binding contracts that have recourse in the real world on chain. And I think, you know, Aave has been experimented with this as well. Open law is another initiative. I mean, if you technically execute a smart contract, again, going back to Aave Arc, it, you can go to court over it. Um, and so you can issue under collateralized loans. Um, in an Aave Arc context, it's super easy because you know who's you know these whitelisted parties, you know who, to your point, Jason, who's behind these wallets. You know, it's JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and then the underlying clients. In a truly permissionless kind of environment, yeah, I do think that this is kind of the major linchpin, right? We need a reputation layer in crypto generally to solve the civil problem that you're describing, Jason, preventing someone from just issuing a million wallets and rage quitting, right? Uh, so, so I'm very bullish on whoever solves this, and it's a combination of things probably, will unlock the ability to under to issue under collateralized loans like ultimately i think the people there's a very small subset of crypto people that will always say 
privacy is king. I never want to disclose my identity. I never want to do KYC. I think that is not necessarily where this space is going. If it truly, if we're truly going to realize the potential of all this, like why wouldn't you want to KYC? Uh, of course, you need to make sure that they're safeguarding your information correctly. But assuming that's the case, then of course, you're going to want to disclose your identity because you're going to get way more benefits, right? I mean, the amount of consumer surplus is going to be created is huge, right? Instead of you trying to get a mortgage and like going to every bank and filling out pen and paper and disclosing everything about your identity, like a major colonoscopy, well, maybe now people are going to know your wallet and say, okay, this person is verified in, in this list. He's this type of risk profile based on everything that he's done on chain. Wow. Like, Think about how many more loans a JP Morgan can underwrite or Wells Fargo simply because they don't have the capacity and the throughput and the time and people to like process all this stuff. But all you really need to do is disclose your identity once on chain, right? Instead of, so I tweeted about this the other day, it's like in Web2, you create accounts and passwords for every single interaction that you have. And it's the most idiotic thing that we have. In Web3, you have one wallet or your wallets. And that is your, to Stani's point, that is your social graph, your reputation that you can use and port over everywhere. And that increases, reduces a lot of friction and increases the ability and the throughput of what you can do in DeFi, in any other type of context. So I think that's where the, again, that's where you hit escape velocity. That's really interesting. Like a DeFi native browser, basically, where like there's there's really no accounts and it's not just financial accounts. It's not purely for a financial use case, like a good credit score. But you start having like consumer use cases where there's no you don't log into Nike. Right. Or you don't maybe log into Reddit like Karma on Reddit is directly pulled from uh, these reputations tokens, maybe for DAOs too. the reputation tokens become interesting. So like when you think about the path to a one trillion dollar DeFi system. What what needs to change? What needs to happen? What does that look like? What's what's the path to a trillion? Um, very concretely, so if you depends on in what time scale. I think in the fastest scenario, you get regulators to provide more clarity, and I think they're moving in this direction. Um, in my conversations with institutional clients, or like not clients of mine, but just institutions, um, they they're on the fence. They're like, well, we love everything. Everything we've discussed so far, they, they at some point get it, especially when they start using it, right? Uh, it's hard for anyone in finance not to get super excited about this technology once once you use it. The problem is, hey, what's this regulatory thing? Um, so that's one. I think as regulators, and I think they're moving in this direction. You know, we need we need regulation, right? It's just not the old regulation to meet this new t- type of technology. Technology needs to be met with technological innovation on the legal side as well. So, so I think we're moving in that direction. There's a lot of really good folks like the DeFi Education Fund and others that are kind of like educating regulators about this, uh, making sure that there's consumer protection. So assuming there's some good clarity there, and I think there will be. I mean, even this week, they're, they're supposed to be coming out with, with more clarity on this stuff. Um, then I think it will unlock a lot of these institutions say, okay, we're going to actually jump in here. Um, the other uh, thing is insurance. I, I mean, going back to this idea, look, yield is great, especially in this environment. Um, you know, if you're going to earn two, three, four, five percent, that that is huge, huge catalyst for people to to use this stuff. Um, the problem is, of course, hey, how do you insure against a hack, right, or against a smart contract bug? Um, and a lot of this code is still relatively young and and needs to be more battle tested. Uh, so I think as we, the answer to this is just provide insurance solutions. Um, and there are currently today, but I think we will. We just need more options and more capacity. Um, but I would say, you know, we're not far from, I mean, look, when I first started investing in, in DeFi, 
uh, Jason, you and I were talking about this, creating a podcast around DeFi, and, and it was like it wasn't even a thing, right? And this, mind you, this was a year and a half ago, two years ago. Ave had zero yeah. in deposit a year and a half, like January of 2020. This I was, still I think, remember. I think we were talking February of 2020 about a podcast. Yes. And and we said, uh, I remember we said, let's do a DeFi podcast. And we said, DeFi's, uh, no one cares about DeFi. DeFi's not big right. enough. <laughs> yeah, but look, things will not move linearly is what I'm trying to say. And and I yeah. think, look at Ave's trajectory. It went from being zero in TVL to the largest protocol by TVL and a number of other metrics. And I think, again, when you have the ability to move money at the speed of information with really good features and functionality and integrations, then things are not going to move linearly. And so, look, I would say I don't like to put time predictions on stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised, let's put it this way, if we reach a trillion this time next year. Yeah, I, I think uh, hitting the trillion mark, uh, I would say in the, within the next 12 months, for sure. It really depends on, of course, like crypto and everything, it's market cycles. The, the collateralization is market cycles, but, you know, uh, except the stablecoin liquidity that fluctuate less, of course. But... Uh, I think just the way things are moving and growing, I think we'll hit sooner than we're ex- expecting if everything goes well. Yeah. What, one of the biggest questions, Stani, when I tweeted out that you were coming on the show is, um, is NFTs as collateral? How does this work? What is the price for collateral? Because they're not liquid. We've got a, a professional JPEG collector uh, co-hosting the show. So uh, yeah, Stani, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe both you guys can talk about just NFTs as collateral. Everyone that owns ETH, you know, or, or bars against it or lends against it, you know, knows that you're getting ETH. But there are a few participants out there that might actually value and different types of NFTs very differently. So you just need to enable that possibility for people to come in. And, and for instance, if there's a liquidation of an NFT, you know, again, you play the, the subjective part of, of NFTs, of the these illiquid assets to your favor, meaning... You know, instead of liquidating that NFT for ETH or stables, there is a person out there today that really wants that NFT that might be liquidated. All you need to do is offer them the ability to 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 bid on that collateral and appraise that collateral. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because the assumption is no, no one wants this NFT when, when everything hits. Well, actually, when the market tanks like day like today, I'm thinking, okay, there are certain NFTs that I really want. So if those NFTs are going to be liquidated then I'm going to jump in there. Now, that that's not the case for everyone. So, so again, I mean, I think it starts with, at least initially, very specialized groups of people that, that have a view on a particular vertical, right? As it relates to, like, it could be crypto punks, or it could be fidenzas, or it could be board apes. But then you extend that logic to say there are very good appraisers and specialists in real estate, in, you know, essentially what, you know, in, in appraising the risk profile of an accounts receivable of, you know, company X or Y, you know, I think that's, uh, that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I, I think obviously done some really interesting stuff there. What you probably need to fix is the Oracle problem. So how do you constantly, do you need to constantly appraise the value of the NFT or do you take the other approach to say anyone can contest the value by which it's being can you not just pull that data contract. in from like a collection of oh, yeah. you know, OpenSea and all that kind of? You certainly could. I mean, a lot. So, for instance, ba- very simply, a, a, a base punk is a very fluid market. Like, there's a lot of volume. Yeah. There's good price discovery, but it gets trickier in in more esoteric and in in more unique pieces of art. Right. Uh, the same with it. You know, how do you appraise a Picasso, a particular Picasso? Well, 
there's very few transactions, maybe once every so other year. So that, like, it's very it, tough to figure out the price, yeah. Exactly, but that's what I'm trying to say is, you have a, an appraisal, there's a protocol called Abacus, for instance, that is trying to do this, which is, you just kind of leverage the wisdom of the crowds and anyone can start mm -hmm. uh, an appraisal session and people can be rewarded you know, essentially you decentralize a Sotheby's and say, anyone can come it in and say, It seems like an hey, obvious wisdom of the crowds type of yeah, solution. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Stani, any uh, idea when this is going to launch? NFTs is collateral on Ave? Yeah, um, we, we're basically working on it now. And I think in terms of like launching, uh, we're now working something related to, to Ave itself. But uh, after that, that's an also the social graph at the same time. And then we're uh, looking to launch. And it's also kind of like tricky because it's a DeFi protocol end of the day. So we have to have to have like um, more rigorous processes before we launch. But um, I think uh, sooner than anyone expects is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. Love to hear that. <laughs> Seeing Santiago like uh, fist pumping here. Um, Stani, you, I mean, kind of on this note, actually, like I heard you say something on a podcast that I will admit I didn't understand at all. You said, uh, if you can custody a dollar, why can't you custody a TV or a PlayStation? Like non-financial DeFi? Yeah. And I like, I'll, I'll admit, I have no idea what you're talking about there. So can you just explain how, how in the world you would custody a, uh, a PlayStation? <laughs> Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones. AMM knockoffs and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier, it makes it faster, it makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH, Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago, pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in. Let's say I want to swap you know, 0.2 ETH. 
for USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, like uh, the this whole thing of like, you know, there's always like projects coming in and trying to like, tokenize real estate and and make that work and you know they always fail because they they just have like too broad sense of what they're trying to do and the like the most efficient tokenization that has happened till this date is the tokenization of uh us dollar you know which is like very kind of like uh even like a boring tokenization but very much needed and um yeah so but but regarding for example tokenizing tv or playstation i mean it's just a custodian thing that has to be solved. If you look at, for example, StockX and what they're doing, you know, they enable the trading of those items, like whether it's PlayStation or sneakers or uh, whatnot, by taking taking the custody of, of the actual physical item and, you know, they have the position so you can trade it freely and securely and you're happy as a just a uh, kind of like a speculator or a fan of, of, of sneakers or PlayStations. And, you know, this can be transported into Web3 very easily. And it's it's even like a kind of like a long, long, low hanging fruit in one way, you know, and, and if someone does that, it creates a lot of opportunities uh, right there. You know, if you can tokenize dollar, you can also tokenize things that aren't on, you know, databases of, of uh, you know, banking systems, but are actually physically somewhere and someone is taking care of the custody. So what you're saying is like, I own... Like I own a bunch of baseball cards. I, I I own some pretty rare baseball cards right now. They're completely separated from Web three. Actually, they're not even on the like on the internet. I haven't put them on like eBay or anything like that. What you're saying is you could actually put those up on something like collectibles on Ave. People price them, and I can take collateral collateral against those. Is that? Well, the th- yeah, it's an interesting discussion. So let's say if someone uh, tokenizes a PlayStation and you trust that custodian essentially and puts that token into in into the mainnet it will trade at the price of whatever the underlying is you know that's the assumption there and then of course if there's a lot of them it means pretty much that then you can actually you know use them as collateral you can borrow them you know you can short playstation which i would not do of course but you know (laughs) you can do a lot of uh, interesting stuff uh and i think just like you bring this like NFTs into like real world assets into uh, into the uh, DeFi ecosystem, you should start from sneakers and anything else. You should start from you know paintings and 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 playstations yeah. and mm-hmm. something that keeps value a bit. You know you don't want people to trading downside all the time. And you know, mm-hmm. but that's the easiest part. You know, and this is something that anyone can start in their garage as well. You know, it's it's and 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 you know create this trust as well. I guess if you tie together Santiago's idea earlier of a browser becoming a, you know, you have a MetaMask, you have a digital wallet and it plugs into Nike instead of creating an account on Nike. I think you could see a world and, and then you extend Stani, your idea out here. Like you could see an e-commerce world where Nike, Nike distributes a token to your digital wallet. When you buy one shoe that Nike verified that you bought the shoe, they give you a token. And then that token allows you to maybe get a claim on Nike earnings or access certain, you know, special Nike events or whatever that may be. And it creates a secondary market for those Nike shoe tokens. So I don't know. I'm trying to mash your ideas together and 
predict the future, which is easier said than done. But in conversations with a lot of these curation houses, like auction houses, like Sotheby's and Christie's, look, they move really aggressively into NFTs. And I was just the other day buying, um, I, I mostly buy NFTs, but I was buying a non NFT item and I'm getting them to, it was like a rare collection of books and I'm getting them to issue an NFT. And the reason is like, for me, it was difficult to prove the provenance of this collection. So I had to say the original creator, which is still alive and the seller to attest and sign an, a, 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 a transaction that is memorialized in the blockchain. So, you know, again, there's a starting point, like the asset has existed for a long time, whether it be sneakers or a PlayStation, but at least you have a digital receipt that cannot be tampered with that says, hey, this actually comes from Nike or comes from whoever. And someone is attesting to that provenance. And then from there, you can envision a world where everything is just more fluid. You can fractionalize it, it if you want. You can share with other people. You can, you know, you can lease it. You can do so many things. You know, there's still a trust. There's still some degree of trust, right? I think the common assumption is the criticism to all of this is saying, wait a minute, the whole purpose of blockchains is because you don't have to trust anyone. And that's kind of a little bit nearsighted. I think different use cases and applications require some trust, but not the same level of trust that you might require of something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, which is layer yeah. one. Like, And so I think uh, you start opening up a lot of use cases if you loosen some degrees of freedom on trust. Yeah. What are the rare books, Santiago? Oh, I can't say now, but I, <laughs> it, 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 you leak that. I alpha. hope <laughs> Stanny actually knows, but uh, we can't leak the alpha just yet. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, I have a question about bear market and bull market building, uh, just to completely switch topics here. Like ETH Lend was completely built in a bear market. And for those who don't know, ETH Lend was uh, turned into Ave. Uh, I've also heard Kane from Synthetics say that uh, one of the biggest differences in building in a bear versus bull market is that in a bear market, you don't want publicity. In a bull market, you do want publicity. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on building in a bear versus bull market and how you view that and what are the differences? Building in bear markets, you have less noise. You know, you focus on concrete things, you know, and you, your mind also kind of rests because there's like less... There's things happening. I mean, in bull market, everything is just is like, you know, oversubscribed, you know, the attention is oversubscribed, you know, uh, funding rounds and even the events are oversubscribed. You know, there was like a hackathon in, in Lisbon recently and I think they could take just like one fraction of, of the applicants and that's like quite sad thing to see, you know, and in a good way because there's like the uh, whole space is growing. I think I enjoy mo both of the moments, but uh, during like a, bear market, you definitely like uh, go back to the basics and, and build things that really have strong foundations. But, you know, uh, some of the stuff that we build as a community, you know, they might not survive in, in bear market, but are good experimentations. And also they, they just might need that like additional noise to uh, succeed. And there's many Web2 applications where, you know, you need noise, you need a lot of investments and, and capital. Uh, to succeed you know and one of the things for example in, in tiktok they they spend loads of uh funds in actually advertisements and everything to get to push the product out and that's just an example where you know uh some of the products in in web 3 uh you need that noise to to get them into a protocol market fit and that might not raise funds in in bear market and sometimes when we say that things are too early it might just be in wrong time at, at the market cycles. Uh, 
when people are creating products. I, I don't know about the attention, but I, I think like recognition is the best thing you want to have as, as a builder. So you want people to recognize your product there. You want people to talk about it and comment and get feedback. And I, I think you can achieve in both of the like market cycles. And, and I personally prefer when it's more quiet and, and you know, yeah. it, it's easier to, to focus. When you can actually sleep at night. Yeah. Um, I think one of my last questions here, Stani, and Santiago, I'm curious to get your take here, is it's starting to feel like consensus that we're nearing the end of this bull market, maybe three, four, five months away. I hate making like price predictions, but uh, it's starting to feel like the consensus is like a Bitcoin-led bull run in October, November, maybe a rotation into like ETH and things like that in November and December. People rotate out of ETH in you know, January, February into more like kind of uh, push out farther on the risk spectrum. I could be totally wrong about like, you know, those, those risk moves and those investment plays, but like just in terms of like where you see this bull market going and how much longer this plays out, uh, what, what is the, what, like, what does the rest of this look like for you guys? Santiago, maybe if you want to start. Yeah. Um, look, as you point out, Jason, it's hard to time this market. It's hard to time any market, especially in a market like crypto has been in price discovery since, since forever. It still is in price discovery. People don't understand how to value something like Bitcoin. Um, I think time in the market will always be time in the market, but like, you know, people want to know like, okay, prices have gone up quite substantially. Like where does it end? Right. I mean, there, there are always natural market cycles to a lot of this stuff, yeah. but I think like, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I can't tell you if it's going to be four months, six months, a year, who knows. Um, but I'll offer just a couple of things. One is it's historically, we've thought about this market as just Bitcoin. And then we started to say, okay, there's Bitcoin and DeFi, but they're all very correlated uh, or Bitcoin and ETH and, and, and then alts. But still, I think a lot of people just tend to think that this is just a, a Bitcoin-led market. And, and look, it still is. It's very correlated. Less than ever before, though. Yeah. I, I think so. Increasingly so. Uh, and in my conversations with new allocators of capital, they a lot of times don't even think about Bitcoin. They're just saying, look, I, I understand something like Ethereum, Solana, Cosmos. These are technology bets. They're not a, a way to hedge macro or uh, anything of, of that. I think smart people don't want to hedge macro with, with crypto or have been too afraid to do so because you haven't truly tested it. But I think there are a lot of funds, even Sequoia just coming out uh, not too long ago, kind of intimating that they're really interested in it's look, it's hard not to pay attention to this web three, this world that we call web three, which is the next arc of innovation of the internet and finance and a lot of these things, gaming, collecting. And so you almost have to think about what bear market, can Bitcoin go down? Sure. Is that going to affect NFTs? Maybe on the margin. I don't know how much. Increasingly less because I think if you see the user and the market of NFTs, I think is one pocket altogether that might be somewhat insulated from what happens in, in Bitcoin camp. And, and maybe Bitcoin, Ethereum and some of these other assets are still quite correlated, but not the activity that you see in NFTs. But what does that do, right? I think everyone that as, as the market of NFTs continues to grow... You also have gaming cropping up. So you have these two ever-increasing kind of markets that will feed into, I think, this other world of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Because at the end of the day, especially Ethereum or Solana, right? Because more usage of NFTs and more usage of gaming is positively correlated with the activity you see and the value that you see in these networks, especially Ethereum, potentially Solana, Cosmos. Yep. And so all I'm trying to say is these two gravitational forces are going to pull away from perhaps the correlation of Bitcoin. Um, and I think you'll start seeing a much more robust, developed market, less correlated, 
um, as people realize that it's not just a Bitcoin centric market. It's not just an Ethereum centric market. There are so many different components and tailwinds of all these sub verticals, if you want to call them that. And so I think that's something that most people don't appreciate. They're still stuck in this very, you know, unified, this is a crypto bucket. And that may be true. One thing that Mike and I debate all the time that I'd love your guys' opinion on is just the four-year market cycle. Crypto has always moved in these four-year market cycles. And and Santiago, we see the exact same thing. And Stani, I'm curious if you guys, if you see the same thing. But like we, it's always been institutions get into Bitcoin, they buy Bitcoin, then they want to move into ETH, and then they start exploring something else. For the first time ever, starting about six months ago, the institutions that we talked to are skipping Bitcoin entirely and moving directly into ETH, uh, which is a really fascinating development. And so like my thought there is, does that make an impact on the four-year cycle? Maybe the four-year cycle is completely unrelated to what people are buying. Let's actually focus on like software as a service, right? So after the internet dot-com crash of 99, you had this kind of two-year period of, of, of bear market-ness. And then you had the invention of software as a service, which was much more capital efficient. It opened up companies like Salesforce and Workday and uh, so many others that you've been in this environment where there's just been so much innovation across disrupting so many different industries um, from restaurants to just, you know, yeah. any sort of like operational process. And you've been in 10 years in this, in this software as a service mega trend. And I, you know, I think, I sort of think that that's where we, I think that that's sort of, at some point we're going to see that in crypto and in web three. Yeah. I guess like, the cycle step on to like bring bring people bring crowds when when you know things are moving uh, fast for everyone. But at the same time, I guess like we'll see a lot of breaking patterns because of the fact that Web three has more and more infrastructure. You know, it's, it's you can compare it to a like a city where you have more buildings, you have more services, you have more infrastructure, and and becomes more like an economy. And uh, it reduces also the the volatility uh, as well. So even if there is market cycles, the the volatility between different cycles might be uh, less. So we might we might not see um, necessarily like very uh, large movements in that way. But that all, I mean, for us, it, it it's kind of like doesn't I, we don't even look into market cycles at all and even like care we we're builders essentially and we focus on building whatever the cycle is and you know what is important now we want to ship it as quickly as possible what is important tomorrow we want to uh, plan it and ship it so it's more about for us about building things and making good products and ensuring that we empower people and web3 is a fascinating tool because it enables you to empower pretty much anyone who can actually generate an ethereum wallet uh, yeah, and that's what we are all about, you know, and propagating this culture to, to uh, you know, everywhere we can, essentially. So this is like the cycles we're living in <laughs> at Aave. Santiago, anything uh, you wanted to ask Tony that, uh, that we have not covered yet? Yeah, I guess from my perspective, I look at Santiago way back and, and I credit him a lot of the insights that I've had over the, over the years is because I've, I've been trying to get, you know, get close to Ave, and it's been amazing to see that. I guess like there's a lot of people that want to enter crypto. There's a lot of people that want to build. Um, there's also other protocols that want to work with Ave or that want to innovate on top of what Ave is doing. And I guess my question to Sunny is, you know, from his vantage point, you probably look at a lot of stuff. 
and you get a lot of inbounds of, of other projects building or other people want to enter the space. But, but as a community, like, what do you think we can do better? Um, in your mind, what are some of the biggest problems? Because we talked about a lot of the benefits, right, in this podcast. I'm just curious from your standpoint, Sani, like, what do you think are some of the things that, that need to be improved? And as a community, as an ecosystem, we can do better. That's, a, that's an amazing question, uh, Santiago. And I think, uh, I think one important thing is the governance. Like uh, we tend to kind of like forget why this protocol exists. And even if they're efficient in the way they work and, and there's contributors building things, like uh, I, would, I would say that's, uh, I would say that maybe the important part is that, you know, we try to improve the way we govern the protocols and make it more easier. Because essentially, if you lose the governance in, in the sense that it becomes like less active or we care less about what's happening, you know, we will see like movements towards like centralization. So, you know, that's that's some, something that's very, very important. I would like to see more uh, like not just only governance tools, but, you know, governance evolve as a as a topic in the Web3 and and uh, see more kind of like participants and, and accessibility to govern things and also kind of like a way to maybe vote without costs as well. So that's something very important. Uh, I have my own version of this, but I'm really curious um, as I think of a DeFi protocol that went from zero to being number one and has maintained that spot for a while. What do you attribute your success to and the success of Ave to? It could be one thing, it could be two things, but like the, the key things that you think made or break your protocol and, and, and to where you are now i think inclusivity uh it's it's kind of like that's what has made Ave in the sense that you know we always try to build in a way that we are very inclusive so we touch upon communities that are underserved and that's what we were able to do when we build the first protocols listing assets that might have smaller communities or just underserved and with you know good risk parameters and and also kind of like a uh, avoiding like being too much of a tribe in the sense that we listed things like wrap BTC when it was uh, a bit more like not that much of a accepted in the Ethereum uh, community and uh, same for Tether and, and all these new assets. And for us, it's always been empowerment uh, and inclusivity and same of going to Polygon as one of the first DeFi protocols and Avalanche and this has been a success. And I think it's something that we learned very early because, you know, the Ave team back in the Eatland days, we never actually received any uh, venture capital funding. And instead of like, uh, eh, but at some point, of course, like there, there's been uh, funds that are, have been participating in helping us out, including Parify at San, where Santiago has been. And, uh, and also like that itself kind of as a, as a, relationship has been part of this inclusivity narrative because you reach out to like more wider where where you know the the funding happens and that has been something that's driven us very far and i think it will keep driven because decentralization is about uh inclusivity but also empowerment and those things are very important to us we talk about decentralization and continuity i'm curious how you see your role in ave over the next you know going forward quick question to that is can avi exist without you that's a very good question. And I think, uh, yeah, definitely it already kind of exists in the sense that I I don't follow all the proposals that are going into the protocol. 
the current state because you know there's so much things that is happening and I'm focusing more into building and I I care about governance that it exists and it functions and try to participate if I can uh, but for me important thing is to build things that where is my passion you know uh, where anywhere else and I think uh, now what's interesting to see that there's uh, developers now forming in Aave community and there is the risk style forming so there's a lot of elements that are just like decentralizing everything further and i think the more we leave space as a as as a development team to other builders to build things you know the the less we are needed and the less we are needed the better our system uh and and our community is and it should not rely on on me or or our team uh or any particular stakeholder it should be you know, decentralized and we should move always with a wide consensus. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that is happening now uh, and it's amazing to see. I mean, even like in the community calls, uh, there are topics that I haven't been aware of and, and progress that I haven't been aware of, but seeing that and not being involved is just probably one of the most amazing feelings that I've been experiencing, experiencing lately. So I definitely think it's the future. Can't think of a better point to end on than that. <laughs> Stani, thank you for coming on. Santiago, thanks for uh, being my co-host, but also letting me uh, flip some questions on you. Uh, just for the audience, I would say like if you haven't played around with Ave and deposited some capital, and uh, honestly, I think the space moves too quickly, and these podcasts hopefully are helpful for you guys, but the best way to learn about this is not from a podcast. It's by playing around with the protocol. So I would... Honestly, listen to podcasts like this, but go mess around with Ave after the show. Also, uh, Santiago and Stani are both speaking at Permissionless uh, in May. Um, Blockworks event, 5,000 plus people. We actually already have 2,000 people who have purchased tickets. Um, Palm Beach, May 16th through 19th, 2022. So hopefully see you guys there. But anyways, Stani and Santiago, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. It was great to be here. Take care, guys.